Thanks, Justin. Uh, if you have a Bible, flip open to 1 Corinthians uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 10 in one little verse, uh, verse 31. So as you're flipping there, um, there is something that I do my best to faithfully remind my people of. Um, every single week that we gather for worship, um, and just kind of sense that somebody in here needs to hear this this morning. So um, you are ordinary and imperfect, and yet deeply, deeply loved in Christ. Let me say that again. You are ordinary and imperfect, and yet deeply, deeply loved in Christ. Deeply, deeply loved in Christ. We, throughout the week, uh, have become professionals at storing up notes about ourselves as to why we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not successful enough, uh, we are not um, the best at what we do. And as we walk in these doors every single Sunday, the privilege that we have is to be reminded that we are ordinary and imperfect and yet deeply, deeply, deeply loved by Christ. You are deeply loved by Christ. He finds you worthy and beautiful and worthy of his love. Worthy of his love. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10.31. And so now listen with open ears to the book we love, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, calling us here together to worship you, and we thank you for the wonderful things that you've given us here in your precious life-giving word. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at it together, that your spirit would be present to help us see and understand these wonderful things, and that you would bring about the change in our hearts that you desire. And Lord, we pray that we would leave this place a people more in love with you and more in love with one another. And Christ, it is in your name we pray, and the people of God said, amen. Amen. Let me start by asking you this question. To, uh, to, I Listen, I almost did it. We gather in the evenings at Redemption, and so if I keep saying tonight, that's why. I'm not crazy. I don't need coffee. Maybe I do, but we gather in the evening. So inevitably when this happens, I end up going, hey, let me ask you a question tonight. And everybody's like, bro, it's 1045. So I get it. I'm sorry. So let me begin by asking you a question this morning. Uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word glory? Just picture it. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word glory? Uh, for all of us, depending on how God has wired us, depending on the season that we're in, our definition of glory or the picture we have of glory varies. Um, it could vary from a beautiful sunset um, as sort of those golden beams reach up over the horizon like fingers reaching up over the counter. Um, and uh, for some of us, uh, maybe what we picture is more like a gladiator who is standing completely bloodied, has defeated all of his, all of his foes, and stands in victory. And what's interesting is we get both of these pictures in Scripture. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The psalmist opens up Psalm 19 by saying that creation itself, nature itself, proclaims the glory of God. This is the psalmist poet setting his gaze upon the sky and seeing through the sunrise, seeing through the stars, through the clouds, and seeing God's glory. The psalmist is literally being drawn through these things in order to see God's glory. 
Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance, speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen to the apostle Peter's words in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 17. For we, did not, uh, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of, the, of coming from our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the, majest, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What the author of Hebrews and what Peter give us is a picture of Christ standing in the arena, having with his own life, death, and resurrection put to death sin, death, and evil, and beginning to make all things new, including including you and including me. And as scripture reminds us, this is a glorious thing. The gospel is a glorious thing. And so these things are most often what we picture when we think about glory, a, a beautiful sunrise or a victorious warrior. Uh, When asked how he would define glory, a famous pastor, if I named him, you would know who he was, who's written extensively on glory, said this, and I love this. He said, defining the glory of God is impossible. So let's pray and we'll go home. No. He says, defining the glory of God is impossible. I say because it is more like the word beauty than basketball. I thought this was good for, for March Madness. He says, so if somebody says they have never heard of a basketball, they don't know what a basketball is, and they say, will you please define for me basketball? That would not be hard for us to do, right? What would you say? Well, there's a ball. It's about nine to 10 inches in circumference. When you blow it up, it's made out of leather. It gets really hard. And you can bounce it, and you can bounce it, or you can pass it to other people. And then there's kind of like this court, and you can kind of draw the court and show them the court and say, at either end, there's this hoop that it used to be a basket. That's why it's called basketball. And then you run down, and you try to get the ball in the basket, and whoever gets the most points wins. His point is, is that basketball is an easy thing to define, that someone would be able to spot a basketball and tell the difference between basketball and, say, the game of baseball or the game of soccer. But then the pastor continues, he says, but you can't do that with the word beauty. There are some words in our vocabulary which we can communicate with, not because we can say them, but because we can see them. Not because we can say them, but because we can see them. We can point, and if we point at enough things and see enough things together and say, that's it, that's it, that's it, we might be able to have a common sense of beauty. You try to, uh, but... You try to put the word beauty into words and it becomes very, very difficult. He's saying that how would you define beauty? It would be easy for us to walk outside and go, well, that tree's beautiful. That cloud's beautiful. That sun is beautiful. That person is beautiful. That child is beautiful. And what he's talking about is you can't define beauty, but you can begin to point and say, that's it. That's it. That's it. And as all these things become to, begin to come together, we're able to say that is beauty. That is beauty. And glory is much the same way that all we can do is simply point and say, that's glory, that's glory, that's glory, that's glory. But for the sake, if you're wired like me that still just wants that definition, he goes on and say, okay, let me try to give you a definition. He says, so here's my attempt at a definition. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. Let me say that again. Glory is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. That's what glory is. When, when Paul talks about glory, when the psalmist talks about glory, when Jesus talks about glory, what he's talking about are those moments where you're able to look and say, there, right there, that's his 
infinite greatness on display. That's the beauty of his character and nature on display. And so it makes sense that when we think about defining it, we're more likely to run to the sunrise or the victorious warrior as those things portray the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. And yet, here's what rarely comes to mind. What rarely comes to mind is the first few moments of the morning as we try to rub the sleep from our eyes, dreading the day that's coming. What we rarely think of is the moment in our car before an awkward conversation you know you needed to have but are deeply worried that your words are going to wound a friend beyond the point of repair. The moment that you've, uh, you've been lied and gossiped about. The moment when you feel like everything you, you hold dear is falling apart. We don't see glory in those moments. It's hard to see glory in those moments. But what if I told you that God says there is? What if I told you God says in those moments there is glory? But it's hard to see. Why? Because life is hard. Life is hard, and in its hardness, we can lose sight of God's glory in these small, often painful moments. We do our best to bypass pain. We do our best to bypass death, to resolve the tension, to, to do whatever it takes to crawl our way out. Why? Because sometimes those small little moments feel like the last straw. They feel like they're just going to crush us. And yet what we have in Scripture is a beautiful promise. That in those moments, here's what scripture promises us, that in those moments, you and I share in Christ's suffering. And in sharing in his suffering, we share in his glory. In those moments, we share in Christ's suffering. And in sharing in Christ's suffering, we share in his glory. God's glory radiates through the highest points in our lives. Yes, we would all tend to agree with that. But I also deeply, deeply believe that God's glory radiates in the 10,000 ordinary moments that make up the majority of our lives. It radiates just as much, as much there. So the question is, well, what keeps us from that? What keeps us from seeing that? Um, a recent study was done of the hit songs over the last three decades. It's interesting what kind of came as a result of this study. Um, in the last 30 years, there's been a decrease in the use of language like we and us and an increase in, in language like I and me. There has been a, a decline in words related to social connection and positive emotions, but there's been a correlating increase in words related to anger and antisocial behavior. And so a book was published, you can go find it on Amazon, as a result of this study, and you want to guess what word it had in its title. The title of the book is called The Narcissistic Epidemic. That over the last 30 years, we have seen a greater increase in diagnosable narcissism than we ever have before in human history. And they just got that from studying the billboard charts. For most of us, and so when we hear narcissism, most of us connect narcissism to something like grandiosity, right? A need of affirmation, etc. It sort of sounds like some of the current presidential candidates' campaign strategy, doesn't it? Let's just talk about how great I am and how great we can make the nation. When we view it this way, our attempts uh, to fight narcissism we attempt to do it by just cutting the person down to a size. In fact, again, if you've been watching the, the, the political arena and the progression of um, the um, candidates, you'll see that some of the other candidates have not been able to catch up to the more perceived narcissistic candidates game. And so what they do is they end up just playing into it. That if we can't catch him, what we're going to do is we're just going to start cutting him down to size. 
We're going to talk about his failures. We're going to talk about his, his, his physical defects where they try to play the game. It's the reason why certain candidates who refuse to, to play this game have been so refreshing in such a toxic environment. And such, so we're seeing on a grand display how we, di- how we tend to deal with narcissism. They just need to be cut down to size. That person is so overinflated and prideful and arrogant, I'm just going to cut them down with size. Here's the problem. It's fighting shame with shame. It's fighting shame with shame. Here's what I mean by that. And remember, um, in case you're not familiar, guilt says, I've done bad. Shame says, I am bad. And we live in one of the most shame-riddled cultures that has ever existed. That has ever existed. And so in our attempts to fight narcissism, we try to cut people down by fighting shame with shame. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, Brene Brown is a research professor and sociologist who has spent the past decade um, studying vulnerability, courage, worthiness, and shame. She currently has the most watched TED Talk in TED history. Um, I think it's over 20 million views where she talks about vulnerability and shame. Absolutely fantastic. It's about 10 minutes. Came out with a book as a result of it called Daring Greatly. And here's what she says about narcissism, and I find it so interesting. She says, when I look at narcissism through the vulnerability lens, what I see is, listen, a shame-based fear of being ordinary. She says, that's narcissism. It is a shame-based fear of being ordinary. I see the fear of I'm never feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed, to be lovable, to belong, or to cultivate a sense of purpose. Listen to that again. This is fact. And listen, um, when God shows up in the garden in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are hiding behind shrubbery. And not even the shrubbery can keep them from God's incredible words, where are you? He does not come down to them as a creator ready to wipe everything out because they've screwed up. He comes to them and the first sermon we see in all of scripture in Genesis 3 is, where are you? Where are you? So when I read things like this, what I don't want you to begin to hear is our tendency is to begin to throw up self-protection. Mm, this is getting a little too close to home. Let's not talk about this. Or you begin to go, ah, see, I knew that was the problem with Frank. I knew all this time. Thank you, Brene Brown, for putting language to what's wrong with my coworker, uh, my friend, my husband, my wife. Don't do that. Hear God saying to you this morning, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? He's, he's not speaking to your friend right now. He's speaking to you. Listen to him. He's not coming as some benevolent 13-year-old teenager ready to tell you why you're not good enough. He's coming as a loving father who was willing to sacrifice his son to make sure his relationship with you would be eternal. So hear him saying, where are you? Where are you? So I'm going to read this definition again, and I want you to listen for the tendencies in in my own life, in, in your own life. Shame is the fear of never, or narcissism is the fear of never feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed. To be lovable, to belong, or to cultivate a sense of purpose. Isn't that striking? So many of us wrestle with the belief that we are not enough. We live in a culture that communicates that to us in order to make money. Just walk through the airport. Just walk through the airport. We're constantly fed this constant narrative of why you're not good enough, why you need the better thing. We sit in front of television and consume the message that you're not good enough. You're not good enough. We're told how to pad our 401ks, a better, faster device. 
Women, I honestly think you guys have it the hardest. Like you guys have it the hardest. And my heart goes out to you. Because when I walk into a mall, there's like two stores I'm interested in. Where there's 150 that's geared as to telling you why you're not enough. And if you're just willing to lay down a sacrifice on the altar that they offer you, you can find worth. You can find value. You can finally feel lovable and acceptable. And my heart breaks for you because I think you have it worse than any of us. Of a culture that screams to us, you are not enough. I would argue that almost every single person Jesus comes in contact with with the gospel is wrestling with this on some, on some degree. Whether it's the woman at the well who knows she's not enough. She knows it. Why do you think she has seven lovers? She comes in the middle of the day when the other women are getting water. She knows she's not enough. Or the rich young ruler who, who is realizing he's not righteousness enough. Every single person came to Jesus with some idea of how they weren't good enough. Do you know what one of the number one questions, actually it's the number one question Jesus asked people in the Gospels? What do you want? It's the number one question he asked people. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And if you begin to peel back what their answers are, what you see is, I just want to be whole. I just want to be whole. In a world that tells me I'm never enough, I just want to be whole. David Brooks, in an op-ed he wrote this week for the New York Times uh, titled The Shame Culture, writes, the world of Facebook, Instagram, and the rest is a world of constant display and observation. The desire to be embraced and praised by community is intense. People, being, people dread being exiled and condemned. He says that there's been a shift in our culture. Well, now moral life is not built on the continuum of right and wrong. It's built on the continuum of inclusion and exclusion. What he's saying is that the way our world is at this moment in history is that for the overwhelming majority of us, our sense of meaning is tied to our ability to belong to a system that says you're not good enough. That our very worth is tied to our ability to belong to a system that says you're not good enough. Guys, this is why this is so refreshing. The world does not have anything to offer like this community. Here's why. Because any other community you can think of to belong to outside of church, if you screw up, you're out. The church is the one place where you can say, I screwed up and be welcomed back in because we are people who have been shown grace in order to show grace. The world has nothing like the church because there is no kingdom like God's kingdom. There's no kingdom like God's kingdom. This is why this is so important. Because you need to be able to walk in to a place once a week and know I'm ordinary and imperfect and deeply, deeply loved. I am deeply, deeply loved. That's the beauty of this community. The beauty of this community. But we live in a world that says we're never blank enough. You can fill it in. Fill in the blank. We're never good enough, never perfect enough, never thin enough, never powerful enough. And when we say it out loud, it feels silly, but for many of us, this resonates because this is the reality of our lives. The inner critic <laughs> that is alive and well in most of us has a longer list than we could ever imagine of why we're not good enough. And so what does this have to do with God's glory? 
I would argue that our fear of being ordinary blocks our view of seeing God's glory in what the world would call moments of just mundaneness. Again, this is the overwhelming message in our culture today that an ordinary life is a meaningless one. That an ordinary life is a meaningless one. And yet, the God of the universe has decided. And I love this, because this is just, our world wants to paint a different picture of reality than actually is. And God, what he has done is he's painted reality. He said, no, no, this is how it works. And so one of the things that God has decided that the way creation was going to work, the way our lives were going to work, the way this world was going to work, is that his infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections is just as on display in the ordinary often seemingly mundane moments of our lives as the most beautiful sunrise you've ever seen or experienced. Look with me at the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter again to the church in Corinth. He says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul's writing the letter of 1 Corinthians really to a church in trouble. It's a church riddled with conflict, sin, poor leadership. You imagine it. It's happening in Corinth. People are sleeping with their in-law or with their like mother-in-law. It's, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in Corinth. And we find ourselves in chapter 10 in the middle of Paul working to resolve conflict that has arisen in the church. Uh, Paul addresses a church that, like many in my church and this church, is deeply flawed because it's made up of deeply flawed people, but at the same time is deeply, deeply loved. Is deeply, most people look at, cor- at, the, at the letters of 1st uh, and 2nd Corinthians as sort of Paul taking out his stick and saying, I got to smack you guys around and get you back in line. But if you actually like read it all the way through in one sitting, what you actually begin to get is this kind of fatherly, loving, pastoral call back to Jesus. And sure, he's having to go like, hey, you quit having sex with people, not your, not your spouse. And you listen to your parents and you, what are you doing? Like, and you get a little bit of that, but it's done out of love and it's done full of grace, pulling back people to Jesus. And so that's kind of the letter that, that we're in. And to prepare his readers to confront the many challenges of spiritual maturity, what he does is he reminds them that God's people possess the resources needed for spiritual growth and transformation. A lot of times when we think about spiritual growth and transformation, it's stuff that we have to acquire. It's stuff that we have to sort of, you know, kind of, like we think about it like a car. Like I just need, I need need an engine of prayer and I need um, some wheels of fasting. And if I get all these right things in place, I'm going to hit the road going 250 miles an hour. I'll have to do an occasional checkup. uh, But for the most part, I'll never have to worry about anything. I'll be free from sin. I'm just going to walk with the Lord and be ready to go. That's not what God calls us to. In fact, Jesus, again, in the Gospels, overwhelmingly doesn't use mechanical illustrations when talking about the life of the believer. He talks about the garden. And if anyone's garden, you know the gardener doesn't, do, the gardener doesn't grow things. All he does is he tills the soil, he plants a seed, waters, and hopes God gives growth. And what Paul's getting at in the first part of 1 Corinthians, and I wish we had time to dive in there, is what he wants the the church in Corinth to realize is, in order for you to grow in your holiness, in order for you to grow in your spiritual faith, it's not so much about what you can attain or what you need to grasp hold of, as much as what you realize you you, you realize what you already have in Christ. He says, guys, everything you need to walk out this life of faith is already yours in Christ. Is already yours in Christ. He says the journey from image to likeness, created in the image of God, that every single person, whether you are a doubter, a seeker, or a follower, you are beautiful and worthy because you were created in the image of God. 
And if that doesn't sound reformed enough, I'm quoting John Calvin. Who John Calvin said that to pass a stranger on the street, they are worthy enough of you selling all of your goods and giving them the money. He says, that's the image of God. That's the image of God. So if you're a doubter or seeker or follower, you are worthy, you are, you are intrinsically worthy and beautiful. But if you are in Christ and a follower of Christ, Paul tells us you are being rooted in Christ in order to grow. I love Paul's language in Colossians. It is, it is, it is the idea of a plant or a tree or a flower growing into what? Into the image. That is the life of the Christian growing from image to likeness. And it is a journey of falling upwards. It is a journey of falling upwards. And what Paul's getting as guys, to grow in Christ is not to accomplish or attain anything new. It's to more fully realize over a long extended period of time of who you already are in Christ. Of who you already are in Christ. 165 times in 13 letters, Paul says you are in Christ. When you say something that much, you pay attention. Paul would not call you a Christian. He wouldn't even call you a follower of Christ. Paul defined himself and he would define you as in Christ first and foremost. That is the, that is the reality of who you are. And so Paul goes to great lengths to, re- to remind them that the resources needed for spiritual growth and transformation is inside of them already. That we're united to Christ. We share, with, we share fellowship with him and with God as our father. And as a result, we receive the blessings of grace, peace, and the gifts of the spirit. And though we were once defiled by sin, God has now cleansed us, excuse me, and made us a people holy through Christ's perfect sacrifice. And so our confidence now comes from the fact that we can grow in holiness, not because of ourselves, but because of the faithfulness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins to take those themes and trace them throughout the book of Corinthians, kind of pulling on them and saying, hey, now here's how this lands practically in the life of the church. And when we get to chapter 10, Paul's focus shifts to the problem of idolatry, which was rampant in the town of Corinth, and not just um, kind of spiritual idolatry, which we think of now uh, maybe more in the 21st century church, but they were actual idols, golden idols. There were festivals. Um, and so Paul's trying to help them with wisdom navigate things as far as like, are we allowed to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols is now being sold in the market and it's really good. It's really good meat. Can we eat this? And Paul begins to help them navigate. Like some of you are spiritually mature enough to eat it. And so go eat it and enjoy it because there's nothing that is not God's. And there's other people where he says, hey, listen, you grew up in an idolatrous context. And so to eat that meat is to stir up reminders of pain of when you were away and far from God. And so he says, don't eat it. And so he begins to move and navigate into areas that are a little more gray, not as much black and white, and begins to say these implications of who you are in Christ and your union with Christ and those things. Here's how they play out. And in the midst of this, Paul makes a statement in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And what Paul's doing in verse 31 is he's pulling in two things that for most of us don't really go together. He's pointing to a God who is glorious and lofty and transcendent and separate and distant because he's holy. It was Isaiah 6, which was read today. That God is holy and we're not. He is infinite and we're not. He is transcendent and we're not. And so there's distance created that he is far off and, and way better than I am. And so Paul is drawing attention to that. And yet, on the other hand, 
the one who is glorious and lofty and transcendent and separate and distant has come down and draws near and enters in and brings his glory into our experience, even an ordinary, mundane experience like having a meal. So Paul's getting at the God who is holy and transcendent is there with you when you're eating a meal. The God who is holy and far off draws in and one of the most ordinary, every one of us eat. Every one of us eat. Most of us eat three times a day. Some are six, some are less, but we all eat. Like it just doesn't work if you don't. And what Paul's drawing attention to is even in those moments, God is drawing near. Again, we, we tend to think of glory in our great moments and our once of a lifetime moments. But the reality is, is that our lives while containing these types of moments are honestly made up of 10,000 little moments. And God's, is God's glory on display in the moments that we move from doubter to seeker to follower? Yes. Is God's glory on display when you walk down the aisle to your beloved? Yes. Is God's glory on display when a sinner who has struggled with the sin for all of his life is finally set free? Yes. But God's glory also squeezes down into the little tiny moments of our ordinary day. He is there when on the table there is a feast and when on the table there is barely enough to fill our bellies. He is there putting on display the infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections. Uh, let me put it this way. I was struck this week as I was kind of meditating on this passage, getting ready for Sunday. If you were to ask me what the most beautiful meal is that I've ever had, I'd be a little torn. I'd be torn between meals that I've had like there's a restaurant in Frederick called Volt, which is like a James Beard Award nominee restaurant. Michael Voltaggio, or Brian Voltaggio, Michael's his brother out in L.A. Um, but we're talking like 13 courses. It took us three and a half hours to get through. And guys, was like some incredible food. Like I, I, it was incredible. And so like most of the time, like my mind would run to that. Or one time my parents took me down to New Orleans and we had dinner, a six-course breakfast. I didn't even know breakfast could be six courses. I was in heaven. Um, I did realize that usually my breakfast includes six courses. It's just on one plate, but that's neither here nor there. Um, a six-course meal at a place like Brennan's in, in, in the French Quarter of New Orleans. That's where my mind immediately ran to. Well, my mind doesn't immediately run to, but if I were really to sit and think about it, my heart is stirred for is the bowl of Cheerios and blueberries I shared with my two-and-a-half-year-old a few days ago. Right? Because we're pulled toward the grandiose. Our hearts are pulled toward the grandiose. We find fulfillment because we've been told again, over and over again, that the ordinary life has no meaning. So we rush through a breakfast of Cheerios and blueberries because it'll never make it into Bon Appetit magazine. Like Food Network is not rolling up and being like, hmm, so do you put the blueberries on the Cheerios or do you eat them separately? Like, like listen, right? Padma and Kalecki are not showing up at my house wondering, how do you do that? Those Cheerios, the way you pour it, the way you put milk. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I've asked, and it won't happen. We're pulled toward the grandiose. We're pulled toward those things that are magnificent, and we trample over those beautiful ordinary that I would not trade anything in the world for breakfast like that with my daughter. Listen to the words of Isaiah. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. Listen to his words. I dwell in the high and holy place and also, this is God speaking, and also with him who is of a, of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. 
God is way up there in the high and holy place, out there in the heavens, and God is also here, right here, right now. Even in our sadness, our rejection, our feelings of never enough, our regrets, our fears, our pains, this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31 doesn't stop with a meal, but he says whether it's a meal or whatever you do, whatever you do, because again, we tend to think of God as an arrogant teenager that we all knew growing up. Growing up, We all knew him. If this was you, God has more than enough grace for today and tomorrow. But we all knew that one arrogant teenager who had a drop of a hat could remind you why you weren't good enough, why you weren't cool enough to hang. Or maybe it was a teenage girl who could remind you with a drop of a hat or maybe just even with a look as to why you didn't belong in her, in your, in her social circle the teenager that reminded you you'll just never be good enough. I still bump into those teenagers occasionally, and I want to be like, I'm 30. You're folding shirts, right? God gives me a lot more grace in saying that, but I'm like, hey, listen, just please make my latte, and let's just keep moving forward. (laughs) Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that, but (laughs) there is. I'm like, come on, bro. but I'm reminded God's not a 13-year-old boy. God's not a 13-year-old girl. God doesn't stand there telling you why you're not good enough. No, he's perfectly designed your imperfect, ordinary life for his glory. Why? Because while you are imperfect and ordinary, again, you are deeply, deeply loved by God in Christ. Paul, in a different letter to a church in Colossae, writes this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am, be, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body that is the church. J.B. Phillips in his little known translation says it this way. It is true at this moment that I am suffering on behalf of you who have heard the gospel. Yet I am glad. It's one of the things about Paul. Paul was untouchable. You could beat the guy and he was happy. Like they left him for dead. He got up, walked 75 miles and preached the gospel. Paul was untouchable. But it wasn't like Paul was, was, was free of sorrow and free of suffering. He describes his ministry to the church in Corinth as suffering yet always rejoicing. Suffering yet always rejoicing. Why? Because his hope was attached to something greater than himself. What Paul is not implying here in Colossians 1.24 is that the sufferings of Christ were lacking. Some people read it that way. That's not what Paul's talking about because you'd have to rip out Romans. What he is talking about, well, he says that, you know, they were, Christ's sufferings are more than sufficient for our salvation, but what is lacking was, suffer, was the suffering of his people, Christ's people, who would go, uh, th- excuse me, what Paul is saying is that what is lacking is the sufferings that Jesus' people would go through long after he left. He says that's what's lacking. He shows us a picture that in some ways all of life will be suffering. And I don't mean that like in an Eeyore type of way. I mean it by either you will be suffering or someone you know and care about will be suffering. And in that sense, our lives are one of suffering. That's what Paul's pointing to. But that that suffering is not a drift, like a boat in the sea looking for land. But what, do, what Paul does is he places our story smack dab in the story of Christ. Earlier in, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes to great length to remind the Corinthians who they are. Again, that they are united to Christ and therefore share in the redeeming power of his death as represented in the Lord's Supper. 
Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of the a blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? He says the bread that we break, is it not in participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul reminds him that you, reminds them and reminds us that you and I are one with Christ. And because we are united to Christ, listen, his story, his story is now our story. The pattern of his narrative is now our narrative. We tend to view life and history, um, especially in seasons of suffering, as circular. That good will eventually give way to bad. It's why some of us just can't enjoy good things because we're like, eventually this is just going to hit the fan. To only enjoy it so much because eventually like the job's going to be gone, dinner will be over, and so we lose the ability to enjoy because we think it's just going to go, things are good now, but they will get bad. And some of us view that like life's bad, but we just have to make it to the good part. We just have to make it to the good part that eventually it will become good. And yet throughout the Bible, what we see is a different story. We don't see good to bad, bad to good. What we see is life, death, and resurrection. Life, death, and resurrection. That's the gospel, but it's a different way of viewing the gospel than most of us are used to. It's viewing the gospel as a journey that remaps our story by embedding us in the larger story of Jesus' death and resurrection so that his normal becomes our normal. That sometimes we want to rush in and say, hey, listen, I know you're suffering, but it won't last for long. You don't know that. You don't know when resurrection's going to come. You don't know what form it's going to take. But what Jesus lays out for us is, hey guys, we can't bypass pain. We can't bypass suffering hoping to get to resurrection. We have to pass through death. We have to pass through death. And when our eyes begin to behold what our stories, what our stories are now, that they are engrafted into Jesus' story, we see that all of life, especially the ordinary, imperfect, even suffering moments, are full of God's glory. They're full of it. They're full of it. Paul Miller, in his, uh, he's famous for a book called The Praying Life, also wrote a little-known book known, uh, called The Loving Life. Um, he puts it this way. It's, it's about the story of Ruth. It's, it's a great book. He says, um, that loneliness, that dying, instead of being the end of you, can display Jesus' beauty in you. The moment when you think everything has gone wrong is exactly the moment when the beauty of God is shining through you. He says, true glory is almost always hidden when you are enduring quietly with no cheering crowd. When old soldiers gather to reflect on their wartime experience, they don't think of the medal ceremony when the world honors their valor. They think of the battle, the sacrifice, the endurance. That is their glory. That is their glory. When for the, when for the thousandth time you quietly forgive someone who will never know your pain, that is your glory. When you continually do a household chore, unthanked and maybe even criticized, that is your glory. Walking into Bethlehem alone, a foreigner without a male protector, with only Yahweh, that is Ruth's glory. This was true of Ruth, and it's true of us because it was true of Jesus. Days before his betrayal, which would lead to his death, Jesus says, The hour has come, the Son of Man, to be glorified. He's speaking of his death. The night before his death, Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. And one of the final prayers before Jesus dies in John 17, 
Jesus said, uh, John records this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world was created. What is Jesus' glory here? What is his glory here? John Stott puts it this way, and I, I love how he puts this. He says, all these passages are taken from the Gospel of John, and he says what's interesting is the way in which John lays it out. What's striking about it is that Jesus' glory above all is to be seen in his present weakness and in the self-humiliation of his incarnation. Jesus' glory in this moment is his death, is his weakness, is his humanity being slaughtered. It's at the cross that we see the infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections. And at his moment of greatest suffering, God's glory breaks through. God's glory breaks through. And if you and I are a follower of Christ, we are one with Christ, his story is our story. His story is your story. His normal is now our normal. God has placed us within a creation that is hurling toward the grand, the grand conclusion of the return of Christ. And we are now free. We are now free to see the infinite beauty of God's greatness of his manifold perfections in the 10,000 small moments that make up our lives or in the greatest moment to come when the skies will peel back and Christ will return and once and for all establish a kingdom where we won't have to work so hard to see God's glory because it will be all around us. But recognizing his glory in the 10,000 small moments of our lives like anything important in our lives takes time. Anything important in your life takes time. And learning and cultivating an awareness for God's glory, even in the small moments, takes time. This does not instantaneously happen in a day, a week, or a month. It's something that has to be cultivated. And I use the word cultivated intentionally. Because as I said, a gardener does not actually grow anything. He tills the soil, he plants a seed, and he he waters. But ultimately, it is who that gives growth. It is God. It is God who gives growth. What we are called to do is to cultivate a sense of God's glory, to see him through creation, to be drawn through. Um, St. Augustine talked about this all the time in his confessions, uh, where, and the language he uses is beautiful, that creation is intended to draw us through. He He says we're intended to be drawn through to God. Drawn through to God. In fact, in in book eight of his confessions, he talks through the fact that um, there were certain things he enjoyed, but his enjoyment stopped with those things. Take drink. He says, I enjoyed drink. I enjoyed wine. But my enjoyment of them would stop with the wine, and yet I would feel empty because I wanted to experience more enjoyment. So he would go back, and, and yet his enjoyment would stop with the wine. He'd go back, and he'd go back, he'd go back. What does that sound like? Addiction. that he wasn't being pulled through something that was good and beautiful to see the one who had given him what was good and beautiful. 
God intends for us to be drawn through. So the question then is, how do we cultivate this awareness? How do we cultivate an awareness for God's glory that undercuts our shame, undercuts our narcissism? First, and I know this sounds like a little bit of like a pastoral underhand pitch, but by spending time in God's word, by spending time in God's word, and not in a way most of us in the West approach God's word as sort of this kind of, this field that we're going to mine for data. Let me just get this one little truth and let me just go on my day and hold on to this. But what God's given us in his word, the prophet Isaiah uh, refers to scripture as rain that comes down on a parched land that gives growth to plants. That's how Isaiah refers to the word of God. You see this throughout Psalm 119, Psalm 19 in the second half, where he gets into the beauty of God's word because what we get in God's word is God. That's what we get is we get him. Because listen, shame can only be dealt with in relationship. Shame can only be dealt with in relationship. And so when we come into scripture, we're sitting down, building a relationship, cultivating a relationship with our Father. And also because since the beginning of time, God has been putting his infinite beauty and and greatness of his many perfections on display, and we get a record of it. We get a record of it. And as we read this book, what we begin to do is we begin to train our eyes to see it. We begin to train our eyes to see God's glory even in ordinary, mundane moments. This is why the Psalms are especially good for this. The psalmist is continually being drawn through creation, drawn through suffering to see the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections on display. The Psalms are beautiful for this. This week as you read, keep an eye out for it. Write it down for God's glory, the, the, the majesty, the infinite greatness of his many perfections are put on display. And it's not only when God comes through, but oftentimes when man doesn't and God comes and says, where are you? Where are you? That is God's manifold perfections and beauty put on display that he rolled up into the garden and said, where are you? That right before he sends them out of the garden, do you remember this? They're still wearing fig leaves. They're still wearing fig leaves. And most of us would go, you deserve those fig leaves. Now get out. Let's be honest. Somebody had crossed us, had hurt us that way. They tried to clothe their nakedness in fig leaves. You and I would have the tendency to say, get out and take your fig leaves with you. What does God do? He says, guys, hold up before you leave. And he goes into the garden, and we're not told what animal he finds, but he finds an animal, a good and beautiful animal. And he slaughters it. And he makes them clothing. As a picture of what he would do thousands of years later. When he would send Christ, who would not only say, where are you? But hey, I know you don't feel like you're good enough. I know that you're trying to hide behind your, your success, your relationships. You're trying to hide behind your pride. But hey, would you let me clothe you? Would you let me love you? I got this. The world's still broken. It's still dark. We have a long way to go before resurrection. But will you let me draw near in the meantime? Will you let me draw near in the meantime? 
more time we spend in Scripture, the more we begin to train our eye for God's glory. <coughs> so that in the moment of suffering, in the moment of pain, our hearts realize this is really hard. This is really hard. I know God's glory is in this, but this is really hard. And you have a loving Father who goes, I know, I know. But secondly, I think that the second way that this is cultivated is in community. Not just any community, but community within the body of Christ. Why is this? Because we're forgetful, pe- we're forgetful people. We are forgetful people. Throughout the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites, this is an oversimplification, and if you are a lay theologian, you're not going to like this, and that's fine. You can have my email. Um, God teaches the Israelites how to party in the Old Testament. He tells them, here's how to throw a party. Here's how to celebrate my faithfulness and make it a really good party. But he did that not because, the Isra- not because he wanted the party, but because he knew the Israelites needed it. He knew the Israelites needed it. He knew they needed stakeholders throughout their year, rhythms that they would get into to remember his faithfulness, to remember his glory, to remember his love, because like them, we are forgetful people, they are forgetful people. And oftentimes the message of the world, again, is that the ordinary is mundane, and it's so loud in our hearts and our minds that we have a hard time hearing anything else. You have a hard time hearing anything else. Oftentimes the pain and the sorrow as a result of suffering is so intense that we forget that in those moments we share in Christ's suffering and because we share in Christ's suffering, we share in his glory. And so we need friends. We need friends. We need friends who can remind us of this, point us to Christ, remind us of the infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections on display. Earlier I made the the point that the underlying cause of narcissism is shame, face, fear of being ordinary. And as I've already said, shame is only brought to healing in relationship. And because shame is the root, community is key because God desires to free us of our shame in relationship. Shame tells you that you're not enough. You're not good enough, not successful enough, and relationships centered on Christ say you are worthy and beautiful, ordinary and imperfect, and deeply, deeply loved. I love the story in Luke 5 of uh, the guy who can't walk. He's lame. And because he can't walk, he can't get to Jesus, and he hears Jesus is in his town. And so he's got a couple of friends, and his friends say, hey, we'll get you to Jesus. So they load him up on a cot. They take him to the house. The house is packed, and so what do they do? They climb up on the roof. They rip open this guy. I don't I like. I don't think it was one of their homes, so they're just ripping open some guy's roof, right? And they lower their friend to Jesus, and Jesus is so blown away by the picture that he heals the man. He says, your faith has made you whole. There will be days, family, when you will have someone who you deeply love that needs to be laid on a cot and taken to the feet of Jesus. And family, there will be days when you will need to be put on the cot and taken to the feet of Jesus. And that's what friendships where we can be vulnerable, where we can be compassionate, and where we can be courageous, and where we can be Jesus to one another is so, so important. In Scripture, we see the infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections on display, in his faithfulness, in his words, in his poems, in his story. In community, we experience the infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections on display in the lives of others. God's glory, listen, God's glory radiates 
through the high points in our lives. It radiates through the Savior, Victor that we have standing in the arena with his gospel having defeated sin, death, and evil. His glory radiates in the sunrise. His glory radiates in the 10,000 little imperfect and ordinary moments that make up your life. Let's pray. Father, we bow our knees before you from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that we might become more aware of Christ who dwells in our heart through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that we might be aware of how you have filled us with all the fullness of God, even into the depths of our souls. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the power of his work within us, to the glory in his church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And the people of God said, amen. Uh, We're going to continue now um, into what is really uh, the culmination of our worship. We're going to enter into a time of communion. Um, I mentioned this a little bit in the sermon, but in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 17, uh, Paul actually talks about communion. He says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Here's what Paul's getting at. One of the beautiful benefits that Jesus gave us when he gave us, the la- when he gave us communion is he knew we'd be a forgetful people. He knew his disciples would forget. In fact, they would forget in a manner of hours. And he says, guys, you need a sacrament. You need a tangible example of who you are in me. He goes, it's not enough to just intellectually know the gospel He goes, you need to taste it and see it and smell it and hear it and feel it in your fingers. Because as real as this bread is, as real as this juice is, he is more real in you than this. He is more intimate with you than yourself. And what he's given us in communion is a tangible, a tangible reminder of that. A tangible reminder of that. This is the family table. This is for the children of God. And so if you are a doubter or a seeker, as already has been said, we are so glad you're here and you are welcome here. But we would ask that you not receive communion today. Because when Jesus gave us this bread and gave us this juice, he gave it for his children, for those who are in Christ. And so while we ask that you not receive the bread and juice today, what we do ask is that you would receive Christ. Who looks at you in your feelings of never enough and says, I love you. Who looks at you in your feelings of shame and says, I have come to set you free And he will do that. He's faithful to do that. And so what we would ask that you receive today is him. Because this is just a representation of him. And he is so much better. He is so much better. So in a moment, I'm going to pray over the elements. Um, After I'm done praying, you can begin to make your way forward or toward the back. Uh, Receive communion, return to your seats, and continue in worship. Father, what you have given us here in the bread and the juice is a picture of what you are willing to go through for us, namely to break the body of your son, to pour out his blood so that, we might become, so that we might be called sons and daughters of you. Christ, we realize that this sacrifice uh, was just that. It was a sacrifice and it was a costly one. 
but we are so grateful that you are willing to move forward toward the cross, laying aside the shame that we might be called sons and daughters of the King. We love you, and in Christ your name we pray. Amen.